Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, when I started the show, you looked shocked that I started the show. Uh, yes, it's because I didn't realize you were recording. I was reading something, and all of a sudden, you started saying your your bit. Oh, so I see. I, I see. missed the countdown. I didn't realize we were starting the show, but that's fine. Here we are. Let's go. No, it's. I mean, do, do you need some time to read? No, 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 no. Um, I, I, it is not necessary that I, um, that I know that about which we are going to speak. In fact, I, I would, to my point, I, I don't need to read it because it's all white noise, which we'll get into in a minute. Well, the reason, the reason. Why uh, the reason why you are reading something is because one of the things that we want to talk about today, and um, we'll segue it will segue into some other things too. But there is a kind of a a document going around that um, in the church right now that people are paying attention to. Um, Ed, you remember the um, the kind of uh, um, a document essay essay I think written by uh, Cardinal Pell and published a couple of years ago um, by um, Vatican journalist Sandra Magister, which was a kind of um, assessment or analysis of the uh, uh, of the pa- Francis papacy to that point it was signed demos and um, and then later revealed to have been Cardinal Pell um, demos please demos uh, it was signed um, <laughs> it was signed demos and then later revealed to have been uh, from Cardinal Pell uh, the Greek word Demos, of course, refers to the, the the people of the people of the state, the the, the people. So, demosocracy um, is uh, is government by the people, democracy. So, demos is a word that means people of the state. Some people pronounce it demos, but since neither of us lived in ancient Greece, we really don't have any idea how the Greeks pronounce it, do we? No, but I can still tell right from wrong. <laughs> There are pronunciations. There, there is the received pronunciation, I suppose, of an English public school, and then there are other ways to pronounce things. And I think if you want to insert an ay into a perfectly innocuous word, then that's fine. I, just, I am. I don't know where you're certain. getting these vowels. I, I am one hundred percent certain that while in an English public school they might say demos, uh, if a there, if a Greek restaurant opened up in my New Jersey neighborhood that served spanakopita and souvlaki. Uh, we would call it demos, and uh, and quite. Well, now you've changed so. again. You've gone from demo, oh, demos, demos. We would to call demos. It de- we would. Call I'm demos. asking. We'd eventually start calling it demos. Like, hey, call demos. demos. Hey, is demo there? And it would start which, serving pizza, and it would just morph into an Italian. Demo? We just have that. We just have that expectation. Um, and and since neither of us lived in ancient Greece, who can say? I can demos. <laughs> you can say it too. Just you know, make an effort. It'll be all right. <laughs> Okay, so there was uh, this memo that a couple of years ago, this essay that kind of circulated a couple of years ago that was a sort of um, critical essay of the Francis Papacy, which was signed by an anonymous cardinal and who was later revealed to be Cardinal um, George Pell, who, who, God rest his soul. Um, This week, there was published on a website called, um, uh, would you like to, Ed, would you do me a favor, please, and pronounce the, the appropriate title of this website so that I don't have to be. Daily Compass? No, <laughs> Basolo La Nova Basola Quotidiani. Oh, I have no idea. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was where it was originally published. I was reading the link that you'd sent me to it. Which... Oh, Daily Compass is the English language version of an Italian uh, website called La, La Nova Basola Quotidiana. I, I mean, I did, my Italian pronunciation. I don't claim to make any. I mean, Italian isn't a real language. It's it's basically Esperanto. It was invented by Freemasons <laughs> in the nineteenth century. So I, no, this is true. This is this is very true. Is that contemporary? I thought you were going to go the other way and say it's basically Pidgin Latin, which there's a there's an argument that Italian is basically Pidgin Latin, but it's also true, isn't it, that the contemporary Italian language, what people think of as standard Italian, is basically a – is it a Mussolini joint or who who created No, Garibaldi Italian? started it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he with, – with his risorgimento, his sort of Masonic um, mercenary campaign – to to rob the papal states and subjugate the Garibaldi was the one of the unifiers of of the Italian peninsula. Unify is uh, it, I mean it was a it was a conquest. These were not places that had been 
you know, they they called it the sort of reunification. It's often referred to as the reunification of, of Italy, but the reality is the Italian peninsula had not been unified since the Roman Empire. And even then, it wasn't, you know, it was united in the sense that it, the Republic of Rome, later the Empire of Rome, subjugated all of the other places. I mean, um, you know, there's an argument that Sicily or Calabria and um, Tuscany and Venice, I mean, they, at, let alone when you get up into the Alps, um, I mean, many of these places don't even speak the same language. And didn't, and were practically mutually incomprehensible at the time of the, the so-called Risorgimento. Um, it was a war of conquest. It was a war of conquest against the church and against the papacy, and it was successful. It was a successful one. And um, one no, element the, of it, the, one, one element of, the of it, chief state uses. Sorry, in in the modern state of Italy, first kingdom, now republic, uh, was to use uh, television and radio. Uh, not in that order, obviously. Was the purpose of mass media was first to to teach people to speak "quote unquote" Italian and newspapers too, right? La yeah. Repubblica. Yeah. yeah, because what various dialects from ranging from north to south, with uh, the northern dialects being relatively German influenced and the southern dialects being relatively Greek influenced, were all sort of suppressed. Well, in and favor Arabic of a unified, I believe, and the Arabic influence probably too were suppressed in favor of a of a unified language for the Italian peninsula. Which was where did it, where where did unified Italian come from? I think it's I think it's more Roman than anything else, but I wouldn't swear to that. I mean, it was dreamt up by academics, as far as I'm aware. Oh, is that so? I thought that I thought, and again, we didn't do any homework here, but I I I'm, thought, I'm grateful that I managed to hijack the show for a change. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that Italian sta- contemporary standard Italian, which is I think the language oh, of no, Dante, I, is it is, is it What's that? No, it's not Tuscan, surely. I think it's Tuscan Florentine because Dante was a big Dante was a big um element of the unification of the Italian language or the standardization of the languages of the Italian peninsula is probably a better way to say it. I think they kind of uh, I think the divine comedy played a role in the standardization of 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 an Italian of an Italian language. So we're going to move forward now. Um, no, you're right. You um, it does look like it's Florentine and Tuscan. You're mm-hmm. quite right. Yeah, yeah. Because of old, of, of old Dante himself. There you go. You were right. I'm okay. wrong. So on the website of uh, La Nova Basola Quotidiana, um, the new Daily Compass, an essay was published this week whose authorship is attributed to an anonymous cardinal. Um, and the title of the essay is A Profile of the Next Pope. Uh, and again, this is an essay whose authorship is attributed to an anonymous cardinal, and it's kind of, I want to say, seven point to seven or so point assessment of the state of the church, the state of the Francis papacy, and the needs of the next conclave. And it's been interesting because this has been, people have been sending this to us. This has been sort of going uh, like wildfire on social media. Cardinal Joseph Zen tweeted it after it was published, and it went sort of viral from there. And I think other, um, I don't know that I've seen any other bishops endorse it, but you have- um, Bishop Joseph of the Diocese of Strickland has endorsed it. Oh, that's right. The Emeritus Bishop of Strickland um, has endorsed it. I didn't realize that, but um, but I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen any other diocesan bishops or members of the College of Cardinals. Uh, Cardinal Zen retweeted it, I mean, or tweeted it, I, I, whether you want to call that an endorsement or not. Cardinal Zen called attention to it, and I haven't seen other churchmen do so. But I know that bishops and and priests are reading it and people are certainly reading it and it's made a lot of attention and noise on social media where there are people who say this is great this is a very clear assessment of the state of things in the life of the church and there are people who say this is sedition and the author of this should be found and deposed and laicized and kicked from the college of cardinals so the reaction has been um like <laughs> the reaction of many things in the life of the church these days very polarized there are people who say this essay um yeah again is a is a good clear-eyed sober assessment of the state of affairs and people who say that it is poison and should be put out, placed on the index of forbidden internet essays i suppose which of which there's a growing list of things of which there is a growing list um the the author says that we we just wanted to sort of talk about this the author says the concluding years of a pontificate are time to assess the conditions of the church and the needs of the church and her faithful going going forward he then says that the strength of the francis pontificate is the added emphasis he has given to compassion toward the weak, outreach to the poor and the marginalized, concern for the dignity of creation and the environmental issues that flow from it, and efforts to accompany the suffering and alienated in their burdens. However, he says, the shortcomings are equally obvious, an autocratic, at times seemingly vindictive style of governance, a carelessness in matters of law, 
an intolerance for even respectful disagreement, and most seriously, a pattern of ambiguity in matters of faith and morals causing confusion among the faithful. Confusion, the author says, breeds division and conflict. It undermines confidence in the word of God. It weakens evangelical witness. And the result today is a church more fractured than in any time in her recent history. And then it sort of goes on to um, to sort of elaborate on those things and, say, and talk about what the author sees, this cardinal author sees, as the task of the next pontificate. The task, the task of the next pontificate must be one of recovery and reestablishment of truths that have been slowly obscured or lost among many Christians. The singularity of salvation through Jesus Christ, God's mercy and justice, God's concern with human lives, that we are God's creatures. Um, a cre- Man is God's creature, says not a self-invention, a creature not merely of emotion and appetite, but also of intellect, free will, and eternal destiny. Um, the primacy of Scripture in the life of the Church, the reality of sin, the authority of the Church. And then there are some kind of observations that go on from there. And everybody's talking about this, Ed, um, or at least a lot of people are talking about this. We're hearing about this essay in a lot of places. What are you? What are your thoughts? I've, yeah, I mean, I think it is, it is, it is well written. It is systematic. It is not an un. It's not an it is unrecon- not a sort of letter which accuses the Pope of being a heretic, or no, it, it is, is not. I don't think in the category of things which says, you know, the Pope is a heretic and Bergoglio should be deposed. It, it does not seem to be that. It no, it does be- not smack of the sort of ridiculous, um, you know, th- this is not a Carlo Maria Vigano special. This is not, you know, this is not a. This is not the work of a lunatic. This is the work of a of a fairly clear eyed uh, um, and systematic. Mind, I, this is I, I, a lot of what is written here. I recognize as being true. I think there's or things that we've talked about even on this show. Indeed, there are there are some points here that I think aren't made. Um, I, I think there are stronger criticisms of the state of the church, the state of the Roman Curia, and the governance of Pope Francis to be made that are made in this document. I think, if anything, it pulls its punches in some places. Oh, interesting. Um, there are some there are some parts of its reasoning that I I find a little woolly and um, not sure I'm entirely on board with. Uh, well, break but, it down if you like. Okay. Um, so I think it'd be fair to say a large proportion of this is is dedicated to the exercise of authority in the church, um, specifically the exercise of papal authority, uh, describing it, you know, that the Pope should not be an autocrat, he, although he's the successor of Peter and the guarantor of church unity, that he's supposed to govern in, in concert and consultation, particularly with the College of Cardinals, that he's supposed to take the the faithful along with him, that he is supposed to be to be leader and teacher, not you know, sort of dictator, that sort of thing. Um, and those are those are nice words, uh, and I agree with the sentiment, sure. Um, but I don't know that 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 makes any particular ecclesiological point, other than you know, I I think that it could be neatly summed up by saying basically, the Pope shouldn't be a jerk to people. And and I agree, and the Pope should consult widely, where this Pope appears to consult very narrowly. And it 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 says that Francis relies on a, I don't want to misquote. Um, uh, it, it's sort of concluding summation, I think, while while praising Francis or at least acknowledging Francis's efforts to diversify the membership of the College of Cardinals, has points out that you know there there has emerged what it calls a small oligarchy of confidants with excessive influence within the Vatican, all despite synodality to centralizing claims among other things and i mean i think that's that's true uh i i think yeah that we've actually ourselves we've talked I think about done, it uh, not only talked about it but done a lot of spade work to demonstrate like a lot of actual reporting work to demonstrate the degree to which consultation seems at the highest levels of the church seems to have narrowed to a relatively small field yeah and and i think i mean to be i, I have my own thoughts on this particular criticism of of the of the Francis pontificate. And I would say this, sure, you can recognize the, the small oligarchy of confidence um, with excessive influence as, as this um, points out. Uh, I don't think that in itself though is particularly new. I mean, it's, it's my understanding that in the JP two era, basically nothing got done in the church unless you could command a quorum of two out of three of Ratzinger, Sedano and Jivitz. Like, Mm. You know, JP. Those were his. Those were his three guys. Everything went through that. Like, if yeah. you didn't have two out of the three of them, it wasn't happening. Mm. Yeah. Um. So, so I don't know that popes relying on a very small inner circle is necessarily new. And I would argue that you know, as some of the worst decisions of the JP two era demonstrated, it was bad then, and it's still bad now. Um, I, I think the criticism is a sense of 
there being a kind of, perhaps the criticism is the sense of there being a kind of hypocrisy to that in the context of a Pope who's saying that he wants to emphasize a far broader degree of consultation and mutual discernment and then continuing to rely on a relatively small. Well, I, I think I, well, so there's an interesting tension between those two, but I think also complementarity because the people that he tends to rely on tend to want, you could call it decentralizing, decentralization of the church. I would call it federalization of the church and a sort of, you know, loosening of the bonds of communion in um, faith and sacraments, though not in governance necessarily. And that's part of, I think, the project that this small group of advisors have in common. Uh, so there's that. I, I, I do, though, think that the the criticism of a small clutch of advisors having a disproportionate influence in the Vatican to the exclusion of other voices is true, although I don't think it's new. I think what is particularly acute in the current pontificate is the vindictiveness around the papal court. Mm-hmm. And that if you are not on the in, you are on the out and you are accused and abused and you know cast out. Well, in the way in which that seems that to was replicate. never the case under Benedict or JP too, that you know, you could have people who were strident theological and personal critics of, for example, Benedict the Sixteenth, and you could be a cardinal running a Vatican pontifical council. And that was fine. It was considered, you know, the Pope could hear strong and strident and even personal criticisms. Um, even personal intellectual criticisms from the College of Cardinals, and he was still able to keep them <laughs> keep them in their jobs at the Vatican and recognize them as being part of the Church. Whereas increasingly, the attitude, and I don't know how much of this is Pope Francis personally, but it is certainly characteristic of um, this group of sort of court followers uh, the, upon which he increasingly relies, is that it is you you are either um, fully on the train, you are either a fully paid up member of a cult of personality or you are an unperson and and ironically for people with um and i think this is another reasonably sound criticism uh i i read of um the current clutch of people around uh the pope including in this letter um not necessarily people with a great deal of either theological or canonical um expertise or aptitude uh, they start throwing around words like heretic and schismatic and you know all of this sort of stuff if you're if you're basically not an enthusiastic cheerleader and there is a sort of stalinistic aspect to all of that and it's not good and it's not healthy and it's not edifying um so i do recognize all of that i mean but what i don't know what the i don't know what we're hoping for other than um you know from this other than to say you know what's the wider point here we're not talking about reforming the way the church is governed you know, this is getting back to my original point about this is, you know, what's the, okay, so this is the problem that it identifies, but what's the solution? There's, you can't change the church's ecclesiology. The church is effectively, Demos II's phraseology notwithstanding, it is effectively an autocracy. Um, it should hopefully be a benevolent one. It should hopefully be a faithful one. Well, I think the point when, I think the point, and you you were critical of this as we were reading before, you know, they the, the author of this says the church is neither autocracy nor democracy. And you said, well, the church is an autocracy. It's a sovereign state. And and, um, and and yes, in a temporal sense, in a legal and juridic sense, you're right. I think the point that the author wishes to make is that the church is um, first and foremost a spiritual community, a, um, a mystical community of the baptized, which is responsible, like the vicar of Christ is responsible to Christ, the head of the church, and exercises power only vicariously. And and in that sense, the church is an autocracy, a Christian autocracy, an autocracy of Jesus Christ and not his vicar. And and so his vicar is accountable to someone and also something, namely the deposit of faith. I think that it seems to me that what's being driven out when someone says the church is not an autocracy is to say, first of all, um, the church is accountable and her leaders are accountable to the deposit of faith. But in another sense, Ed, I think Wait, that the church... Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I don't want to... I don't want to I, this is going to come down to... We had a discussion about something the other day, just the two of us, where it came down to you You kept saying you're thinking about this in a completely legal context and you were making a point that was much more moral and holistic. And I think oh, we might yeah. be about to fall, <laughs> fall back into that trap. But can I just say, no, the church is a spiritual autocracy. The first C is judged by no one. That's not relating to the church's sovereign temporal footprint. The, that, is, it's that, that is its that spiritual. First, but no, it but is you not say, true. oh, the church's leaders are accountable to the deposit of faith. Accountable by what mechanism? By their eternal judgment. That's the okay, point. Is so, whole, yeah, so right. I'm literally saying if the, if you only assess the church in terms of sort of the a limited sense of 
uh, a temporal sense of her reality. But it's not true. It's only true juridically that the first sea is judged by no one. In the most important sense, it's not true at all. The first sea, namely the pontiff, is judged in his judgment, which is the most important thing that any of us will ever encounter. So y- yes, spiritually, the church is not an autocracy because Christ is the head of the church and not the vicar of Christ, or Christ is the autocrat of the church or something like that. But th- there's another sense in which the church is not an autocracy that I think is worth sort of recognizing. And that's the thing which is emphasized in Vatican II, namely that the diocesan bishop is a legitimate and true successor of the apostles. Like the church is not an autocracy because it's actually the model of Christian governance, of ecclesial governance is communio, that the governance of the church is a communio of the leaders of particular churches, which exist in the universal church and um, in um, fealty and union with Peter. But the Pope can't, much less than the King of England can, the Pope can't um, just sort of obviate the successors of the apostles and their legitimate authority. But he has. This is the problem. He has. No, I mean, if there is one solid criticism I would put against the ecclesiological governance of Pope Francis versus the sort of temporal governance, and we have talked on the show ad nauseum about um, the failures and vicissitudes of the Francis pontificate with regard to the application of the church's norms and laws, and that things seem to be, it seems very clear that there is one rule for one and no rules for others. And, and so putting that to one side, I think from a spiritual ecclesiological standpoint, the greatest criticism that can be made of the Francis pontificate is that it is a total obviation of the ecclesiology of Vatican II. That and I think that's what this criticism is driving at, is that right. the, the, this person is saying the papacy has been treated as an autocracy or the church has been treated as an autocracy when indeed the governance model of the church is, um, is, is, is a model of communio. Right. Also, though, even even let's take the deposed bishop of uh, of Arecibo, Puerto Rico, Daniel Fernandez Torres, right, who lost his see. He he was no longer the diocesan bishop of Arecibo in a move that he was has deposed. been widely he was deposed in a move that has been widely criticized as being a, a praetor legem beyond the law in, in any sort of procedural mechanism whatsoever. Um, bishop Fernandez remains a member of the College of Bishops. And the College of Bishops exercises, whether it chooses to or not, or whether it's convened to or not, the College of, Bishop exer- of Bishops exercises both teaching authority and in communion with the Pope and in an ecumenical council or another kind of extraordinary forms of governance, a, a governing authority. So even um, for a person who is no longer a diocesan bishop because of the criticized decisions of, of, uh, of Francis, he retains his Episcopal charism. And for, so from a charismatic sense... I think it, it's also worth sort of saying, no, in fact, the church has this in terms of its most sovereign teaching authority and its most, and it's the exercise of its governing authority has this communal character to it, right? Or ought to have this communal character. Yeah. And the problem is the Pope doesn't have to observe that. He doesn't have to. Well, that's the thing is the, is, is the, ar- that. The, ar- the articulation of the relationship between the College of Bishops and the Petrine Sea is that the College of Bishops can act only in communion and never without communion with right. its head, the Bishop of Rome, and no such obligation of maintaining communion <laughs> exists the other way. Right. The Pope can and does and has um, acted without um, and apart from the, the communion of the wider College of Bishops. This was seen most recently with the issuing a fiducius supplicans in which significant portions of the college for bishops, a college of bishops stood up and said, no, no, we do not agree. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I, is it a fair criticism of the Francis pontificate for sure? Is the, is the reaction that you can find um, from, you know, this, the sort of, the sort of papal courts, self-appointed gentlemen of the stool, um, you know, equally, um, passionate? Yes, of course. Uh, but again, to what end? That I guess that is, if I had a criticism really of the, I mean, the other thing is, I think is, I did, absent from the Demos to uh, manifesto, I would say is, are, are anything touching on, I mean, there's, there's reference to the, the, the curia needs to be renewed. Um, it, it says the Vatican itself urgently needs a renewal of its morale, a cleansing of its institutions, procedures, and personnel, and a thorough reform of its finances to prepare for a more challenging future. These are not small things. Well, they're not small things. I, I, okay, a renewal of its morale and a cleansing of its institutions, procedures, and personnel. Well, you can, you can, you can renew morale or you can renew the personnel, but you can't do both. 
you can't say we're going to improve morale by firing everyone. Um, that doesn't. <laughs> that, that, I'm, Although I'm a cleansing sorry. of its institutions doesn't necessarily mean firing everyone, right? It could mean no a cleansing procedure. of its personnel. It oh, says. a cleansing of its personnel, institutions, procedures, and personnel. The we're going to increase more. We're going to close everything, yeah, fire but, everyone, and burn yeah, it all down. That'll improve morale. Yeah, I, you yeah. know what do you what do you want? Although um, I think there are you look. You and I know a number of people who are in the middle management class of the Holy See, who have um, struggled with the with the administrative leadership decisions of those in the senior leadership position. Sure, classes of the Holy See. So if this is making a distinction, the bureaucrats of the Holy See will have a morale improvement when. Um, senior level personnel has changed, then I think that would be a that would that would I think squaring would, the circle would be would be a wonderful way of squaring the circle. Um, again, though, this particular sentence uh, is this true now? Arguably, in some departments, more true, and arguably in some departments, less true than things were at oh. the end of the Benedict Pontificate, and certainly than JP two Pontificate when there were lots of when there was lots of administrative dysfunction in the Roman Curia. Oh, there was lots of administrative dysfunction in the Roman Curia under JP2 for sure. But I mean, I think people forget exactly how close to total collapse the holy, the, the curial machinery was at the end of the Benedict. Like you know, the three cardinal reading... committee who delivered that 500 page report right. on curial corruption. Like that was not, like everyone seems to have memory hold that. Like I, the I place was really was. About that and about Benedict's exhaustion. Like it, now we sort of look back and say, Benedict's um, resignation was totally unexpected, but it really, in a certain way, if you could read the tea leaves, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. but if you could see the degree to which wheels were coming off in very many ways, Benedict's resignation makes sort of sense in the sense that, man, there were just um, new problems emerging in so many corners of the of the Roman Curia in the months leading up to his resignation. Yes, and that he, he, he personally discerned he was not the man to bring the necessary reformer to wield in some cases the necessary knife to get rid of the those who were at the root of the There's problem. also though it's interesting because there's a greater expectation now uh I would say because of institutions like the pillar of financial accountability and transparency administrative accountability and transparency in the Roman curia so um there's less I think tolerance for administrative dysfunction in the life of the church because of a sense that it breeds greater kinds of dysfunction. And 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 Francis actually, I mean, like the Betu trial is an, is evidence of the fact that there's less administrative tolerance. But there's just I think there's a higher expectation of it now than there was then of administrative uh I don't want to say administrative purity, but administrative functionality and um and and rooting out corruption. Like a Pope faces more pressure now because of us and people like us not to allow ongoing financial corruption. Maybe, but these things come and go. I in the I Francis mean, in the JP two papacy, no one, no one would have even known the name of a CC Moronia type character. Yes, um, but that was because Cardinal Sedano ran a tighter ship, and if you were going to bug everyone and you know run a network of private spies off books, it would at least be done competently. But I think also because Catholics did not have the sense of um, the prospect of public accountability for the church and public accountability. Sure. But I mean, the, the, we, we hold these, I mean, and again, no one has been more, I think, honest in the appraisal of the radicalness of some of Pope Francis's administrative and financial reforms than I have. But I think we need to also equally acknowledge that the tide has gone in and out on papal mm -hmm. enthusiasm for these things three or four times over the course of the last 10 or 11 years. Um, I wrote a thing last month, I guess, two months ago, about you know what if the Holy See goes broke, and why it really could go broke like properly. But I was working off of numbers from 2022, and the reason I was working off of numbers from 2022 is because last year the they didn't publish any numbers. Yeah, the the count the um, the secretary for the economy just didn't just decided not to do a budget statement that year. Just like mm, the numbers are bad, so we're just you know. We're going to pretend like we haven't been, you know, this this landmark reform of transparency we've been making a big freaking deal about every June for the last couple of years. We're just not going to do it anymore, and uh, hope that no one notices. You know, <laughs> so you know we hold all this lightly, and so I would agree with Demos too that that this needs um, reform, and that there are there is a more challenging future over the hill. I I, I feel like it's a very broad. Um, <laughs> 
a very broad slate of urgent needs, though, a cleansing, a renewal of morale, a cleansing of institutions, procedures and personnel and a thorough reform of its finance. Like, well, great. <laughs> but that's like saying, you know, we need the Lord to come in glory soon because <laughs> I, I, I don't know how you go about that. I think you have to pick your targets and be a little more, you know, there, there, there seem to me to be, I mean, if we're, if the purpose of demos two here is to, is to signpost and diagnose what the college of Cardinals should start thinking about for the election of a new Pope sometime in the near to medium future, because the Pope is 87. Um, fine. But what are what are we saying here? We need someone with a global mind, a global mind for collegiality, um, clarity of thought and action, and courage on evangelizing priorities and the magisterium of the church. Um, a a gifted and flinty-eyed administrator of the kind the Vatican has never known, um, and, and as well as hopefully personally charismatic and able to. In- undertake a, a an important international travel schedule like where are we going to find this so your point is which one yeah i mean this thing you know there are what seven seven sort of diagnostic qualities here and i would say they i wouldn't go so far as to say they point to seven different types of person you might elect pope but i think they point to at least three and it's interesting because the um i, I do think they point to different characters and i, I you know perhaps that perhaps the intention um, is for cardinals to discuss or even to begin to discuss precisely that, which one or which men have some of these requisite qualities or which of these requisite qualities should we emphasize? And and I think there can be disagreement and will be disagreement among people of goodwill about which of those people who would say we need another JP2, a global evangelist, would be countered by people who would say, no, we need Vos Estes Lex Mundi to work um, or the successor to Vos Estes Lex Mundi to work. And we do, we need someone who can spend their time in a serious way riding the ship financially. Like a reformer and an, an evangelist and a reformer are not the same thing. Um, you know, well, uh, and uh, also someone, and to be clear, someone who takes Vosestis Lux Mundi seriously, someone who takes Como Mono Madre Moravole seriously, someone who takes Episcopal accountability and transparency in that accountability seriously is going to be viewed by quite a lot of people in quite a lot of places as a Francis II with regard to minimizing the role of bishops and being totally... Right, that's right. I mean, a consultor would be different. So here they're saying we need a lot of consultation. And they're saying we need a sort of decider, and deciders and consultors are not always the same. Um, and uh, and well, and you so, can't have someone who sits with the College of Bishops as a brother, and at the same time is saying, "And I'm going to I'm going to institute a right. proper legal witch hunt into everything that you people have been doing wrong and negligent about for decades, and we are going to have real accountability." Yeah, you especially because um, there's a great temptation in the church or in any society to view reform, disciplinary reform, through a partisan lens. We have a desire to see them punished, but we are unhappy when we see us punished, right? And uh, and so th- that temptation seems to me, it does not seem to me that the College of Cardinals is immune from the possibility of that temptation as well. And so a true sort of reformer who said clerical discipline up and down the line um, would would not be, <laughs> would, you're right, not be very popular with very many people or very many parties and sort of not have the backing of, Francis has the backing of an element of the church. And then there are other elements of the church's governance and leadership, which are very critical of him. Um, a true reformer would probably have no friends, very, very f- few friends. And and again, you know how I know he'd have no between, friends It's because we have no friends, and all we're doing is calling we're not for true it. Reformers, right? Like yeah. we're we're not pr- true reformers. We're we're calling for it, and we try to call balls and strikes without, um, without owing favor to friends or people who would perceive themselves as our friends or people who would be theologically aligned with us. And that ticks off a lot of people, right? People who are theologically aligned with us are most often ticked off at us because they don't expect us to um, look around in their backyards, right? And people who sort of think, well, they're, they don't agree with us about Ordinatio Sacerdotalis or whatever, kind of expect that we would look around in their backyard and so they're not as scandalized by it. And so you're right, the Pope would have that that challenge uh, as well. Um, so yeah, this is probably calling for, I think you're right, probably calling for several different Popes in, in a certain sense. And... Um, you know whether that's meant to uh, whether the the cardinal author of this um intends to sort of call for some sort of super pope who would have all of these attributes in a way that seems hard to um grapple with or whether or not this this cardinal intends for there to be weighing exercise about these things and to prompt discussion about these things i don't know of course it hasn't prompted that kind of discussion 
yet because or at least where i see it the only framing of this has been either good or bad like oh good this finally laid out all the problems with francis which i think an element of this intends to lay out some systematic criticisms of francis or how dare people speak against the pope so the way in which there can be a conversation about the fact that any person who's elected to the papacy will have positives and negatives and there will be trade-offs between varying goods um you know ha- has been less seen than this be seen through the through the lens i think of good they kind of got francis they nailed francis or um how dare they say this of francis yes well so can we now talk about the context now that we've talked a little bit about the text because yeah, i think sure. you're we're you're you're moving sideways into that and i think that's i am also i am by intention here. because of, i'm watching the clock and i knew it was time Oh, I did. I a good host, Edward. A good host is always mindful. You know, there's so many things when it's your desk to be mindful of that I, you know. I don't know. I've never practiced mindfulness. So. <laughs> um, you do. Okay, Hold so on, let's talk out. about. The- We're coming back to the thing, but you do. Isn't mindfulness a part of your yoga routine that you do? Your your professional wrestler YouTube yoga that you do? No, in fact, I specifically said and wrote. There's no mindfulness. So the professional wrestler yoga instructor who you follow never says like clear your minds or no. something like that. No. Oh, okay. Well, the more you know. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about uh, the context here. Who is this for, JD? That's a great question. So I think the best reading of this is that it is for the College of Cardinals to begin to discuss and consider those things and those points which we are raising. Okay, you know the the, the elements of the Francis pontificate which have not worked, and the the weighing exercises that will have to be done ahead of a conclave. All right, so 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 the goal here, and I think you're right, is to is to start or participate in or lay the groundwork for a conversation amongst the College of Cardinals ahead of again a, a conclave that has to come sometime reasonably soon in the medium mm-hmm. term. So is publishing it in an Italian website publicly under a under a pseudonym is that is that the effective way of going about it to your mind i would like for you to say what you think i do not like um when people try to lead me down a path in no a, i'm not in trying to lead you down a path. i'm before I, I that's ex- the question which occurs to you i would like for you to raise it as JD, this is a question never in my entire <laughs> history with you i has, resist it, that it, i resist that it, it has never occurred to me that i can lead you down the garden path into getting where i want you to be because it has never once happened I am saying I have my opinions on this, but before I express them, perhaps stridently, I'd like to know what you think so that I might then modify my position or, you know, come to a different appreciation. Uh, I see. Actually, I do think, uh, I do think that if if your question is, is is publishing this in the Daily Compass a good way to get the dialogue going about these things among the the relevant people, the cardinal electors? I think actually possibly yes, because I'm not sure if the guy who wrote this had sort of mailed this to all the cardinals, whether they would have, how they would have received it or if they would have received it or if it just would have gone in the pile. But I think creating, I think it's possible that creating sort of public conversation about this, in a, I do not think it is bad for the cardinal electors of the church to engage in conversation about these issues with people other than themselves or to observe the way in which conversation about these issues are uh, goes among people other than themselves. In other words, the church is not a um, well. The church is not a uh, democracy. Although now we are talking about an election, the election of its most important office. Um, the church is not. Well, is that not would be a, a republic, not a democracy. Right? Yes, yes, I know precisely. That's right. The church is not a democracy, but there is some value to knowing what Demos thinks about this, and uh, you know, to heading down to Demos and just asking people, and 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 hearing that, and 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 actually, you know, if synodality is anything. Um, it is laying bare issues in the life of the church and having be- the belief that the baptized beyond those who are members of the College of Cardinals might have something to offer which can inform the life of the church. Okay. Um, you are skeptical of that. I, I don't know that I'm skeptical of it. I I guess it depends on what the what the hope of the thing is. If the hope of the thing is to start a public conversation, it's done that. Mm-hmm. If the hope of the thing is to start um, serious reflection amongst the the College of Cardinals, I I don't know because I'm not a member of the College of Cardinals, nor do I have immediate access to a representative 
selection of their opinion as a body to judge this. Um, I don't know how effective this is, particularly when published in a suit. It was my impression that when Pell's Demos letter came out, it was read much more seriously when his name was attached to it after he died. Oh, I think it would be very helpful and good if the uh, if the uh, cardinal author of this would identify himself and, in true JD fashion, I have been um, working the uh, the phones over the past couple of days to see if I can find out who who wrote it. Sure, I mean I think it to goes without saying that the um, the angry the angry goblins of um, you know Twitter and 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 the sort of you know cult personality vanguard around Pope Francis would come for them. Um, it may even be, I mean, Pope Francis has a sort of mixed record on, on how he, de- as he, as he does on the application of almost any discipline. Um, he has, he has a fairly mixed record on how he responds to personal criticism. Sometimes he goes, I'm very comfortable with strong opinions. Uh, you know, right, 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 right. I'm, I'm happy when people disagree with me, as long as it's done in, in honesty and in a spirit of charity. Um, and other times he, you know, takes your house. So, uh, you know, it, who knows how Pope Francis would react to, to the, to the Cardinal author making themselves. No, I think it's fairly self-evident. They would come in for a very rough ride. Um, I'm although ironically that would is... in a kind of way demonstrate the point. <laughs> right. right. And this is written, um, th- this, you can, I don't think that a person in good faith can read this as an attack on Pope Francis. No, it isn't an attack um, on Pope Francis. It offers a view on Pope Francis, which as which includes criticism. Um, but I, you know, this is not. I, I don't. I genuinely don't think this can be read as an attack on Pope Francis. And I have on this show talked about bishops who I think attack Pope Francis in ways that are irresponsible and things like that. I, I don't think you can read this as that. Like, if I, I would have no problem saying all. If I were a synod on synodality participant and I had put my thoughts together as cogently as this. I would have no problem saying my thoughts about the church's life and governance as candidly as, as this has been said, I don't think. If, I guess, I mean, this is, we'll, who knows if this will work or not. I certainly wouldn't have a moral, like, feel that I was in some way if, acting immorally with regard to the Oh, no, absolutely right. not. I, I just mean in terms of its effectiveness, you know, the, the intentions being what we've, what we've see, said them to be, that this is about informing um, and stimulating earnest discussion Amongst the College of Cardinals, they got the last group of guys who had a, a, a serious agenda for what they wanted to see in the church. They didn't write anonymous letters in Italian websites. They all oh, got they together in a Swiss, yeah, they all got yeah. together in a Swiss ski hotel every couple of years and gamed it out. And mm-hmm. you know what I wanted to talk about on the show was the was the mechanics and tactics of conclave voting over the last couple. Good of because days. I've left time for that because I knew that was the transition we were going to go. All right. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know how well this works as a, as a, as a genuine way of sort of seeding the conversational ground ahead of a conclave because, and when I say don't know, I mean, I genuinely don't know. We're reading it. Sure. The, the sort of fever swamp of Catholic Twitter is devouring it. Sure. Uh, I'm sure somewhere in, in his goat farm in Lazio, Austin Ivory is losing his ever loving mind. Uh, oh, know, he's losing his mind on the internet over it. Plus a change. Um, you know, whatever. But are, are Cardinals in Rangoon reading this? I don't know. Are Cardinals in Kinshasa or Kigali reading this? I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't immediately guess so, but I could be wrong. Um, I would expect it's getting around. I, I, I would. I would be interested to know um, what percentage of the College of Cardinals. Are there. I mean, again, I'm not saying they clearly aren't. I'm saying I genuinely have a question. How? Yeah. What is the? What is the real? Um, what is the real radius of ripple for for something like this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. Um, I like this. <laughs> I can. I, I'll say this, and people probably get annoyed at me about it. But I like Demos two more than Demos one. Um, yeah, it's a very good text. Cardinal Pell's one was wrong in places. Like it was just wrong and I disagreed with it and I thought it was wrong mm-hmm. on the facts. Um, I disagreed with his demos one and I was disappointed to learn that Pell was the author after he died and um, they published We it. talked about that on the show, I think. Yeah, he he just, he got some stuff wrong, which which disappointed me um, on on the on the search of the Vatican financial trial on Betchew and Cardinal Pell saying that Cardinal Betchew had been denied his due process and rights by Pope Francis, which he she just hasn't. 
Um, you know, again, he, there's all sorts of places where Pope Francis has, I would argue, capriciously or capriciously applied due process or revoked people's rights. I just don't think that Jews trial is one of them. Um, so I like Demos two more than Demos one. It will be interesting to see if we find out who who it was. Um, if this becomes a sort of underground hit, I, yeah, I wonder, I wonder, I, I just don't know. The The difference between this and Deimos one, I think is that Deimos one was effectively a, a laundry list of criticisms of the Francis pontificate, you know, from the perspective of Cardinal. This is Hall, definitely more forward looking. This is, this is more forward looking and yeah, and more and operating more at the level of principle. Now, you know, Cardinal Pell's memo flagged some very serious issues that that needed to be flagged or that he felt needed to be flagged that were very specific and that came from his particular experience uh, in the Roman Curia. Some of them were new to Francis and some of them um, weren't. Phone tapping is regularly practiced. I'm not sure how often it is authorized. That That's not a, that's, I don't think that's a new practice in the Holy See. You know, so some of them were not new. Some of them, as you say, the numbers were wrong and, and, and some of the details were wrong. This operates much more at the level of principle. What ought the Roman pontiff to do in our times? Um, or what ought the next Roman pontiff to do? Or what are some of the elements? And again, we're in agreement that no pope could do all. But what are some of the elements for which we should give consideration in the next conclave? Whereas Pell's was kind of much more could be read as an indictment of Francis qua Francis, right? Yes, I think that's fair. Okay. But I mean, also the... In as much as I disagreed with the substance of Cardinal Pell's criticisms in Demos One, I think the knowing who wrote it after the fact um, lent some interesting, um, improved the reading of it. Mm -hmm. That yeah, that's right. Things that with which it I disagreed or considered lent yeah. credibility to elements of it. Like lent well, Cardinal Pell says, this is true. He has the experience by which he would know that it's true. But in, in other things, he's like, well, I don't agree with that, or I don't think that's right. It's like, well, but I understand why Cardinal Pell's coming at this from a different perspective. Like Cardinal Pell is acutely sensitive or was acutely sensitive to due process and the presumption of guilt against Cardinals because the guy spent a year in solitary right. having right. been wrongfully convicted by a kangaroo court. Like, you know, fair enough. I, I do. I agree with you that I, I like this text more. I do think it's probably being read. I mean, the College of Cardinals is a very small body. And I suspect it is being circulated among them. I, I don't think any of them, I don't think any of them will say, yes, this totally changes my perspective. I think for some, it will confirm things which they have thought and not articulated. And some will view it as, um, you know, I think there are cardinals who will view it as seditious or as failing to understand the Holy Father or principally read it through the lens of a criticism of Francis rather than reading it through the lens of, of, of a prospective kind of consideration of the factors which should be considered in the next. But the people who do that conclave. are, the people who will do that fall into one of two camps. And I think they are, one of those is a tiny camp and one of those is a very large camp. Uh, in the tiny camp are the sort of people I would consider to be um, of a particular ecclesiology who really are more ultramontane than Vatican I, who really do think that, you know, l'église, c'est lui. <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the church is the person of the Pope, and there is mm -hmm. nothing like, you know, the, the whole of it, faith, sacraments, governance, all of it, it exists not just in the, uh, it is not, it isn't just, it's not just um, supported Those by- Those who would offer the unqualified opinion that the church is indeed an autocracy. Well, not just that the church is indeed an autocracy. That's a question of governance. I'm saying that they would argue that almost at an existential level, they would have the the, the church is the is the pope is the and not just they, the pope, yeah. not even the office of the see of Rome, but the, it the is man. The, the man that oracular vision which we've talked about before. Those who perceive the pope as the the sainted oracle guru at the top of the thing, yeah, a sort of Mormon living prophetic role. Flows as much from him as from anywhere else. Exactly, a, a, a sort of living, a living process of personal mm -hmm. revelation is is how mm -hmm. some people uh, an LDS papacy because that exactly. kind of does reflect an LDS. Yeah, it's the Mormon living prophet model, um, which is wrong and heresy, by the way. But that's um, so. That's that's one small camp. The other, um, uh, you you made a face there. I'm not sure. I think the Roman living prophet model is a heresy 
because it's so far outside of the category. Like um, Roman uh, Mormon Christology is a heresy, but they're so, they're thinking so different. Like their ecclesiology is. I don't think you could, one can say that their ecclesiology is heretical Christian ecclesiology so much as it's categorically its own thing. That's fair enough. Um, I mean, if, if all the, things which are not true are heresies, then it's a heresy. But it's actually just it, okay. That's in its, yeah, that's in, in its own universe. I like that. Thank fair, you. Fair enough. Um, anyway, the larger camp will be those who are just personally invested in this. Is politics for them? This isn't yeah, actually right. about faith. This isn't actually right, about a kind of partisan read of the whole thing. Yeah. The, the, this is the sort of you know almost fetishistic obsession with personality politics within the church and you know, that that sort of thing. Um, which is where you get the sort of, you know, weird and vicious and vindictive um, Twitter gladiators out there doing doing their thing. Um, who, you know, it's, it's the same sort of people that like when Traditionis Custodis came out, dedicated like entire days of their lives to combing parish bulletins <laughs> across the West to find anywhere that had a Latin mass scheduled so that they could like name and shame people who, you know, didn't republish their parish bulletins fast enough. Like those kinds of people who are who are just sort of angry and ill. Um, I, I think that's the larger camp of uh, of the two rather than people who just have a disordered ecclesiology. I think there are just people who are more personally and politically invested in um, church politics than they are in actually the welfare of the church or the announcement of the gospel. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Well, we've talked through it. I, I think... I think that there are many issues here which are raised about the direction and the life of the church which are worth discussion and worth conversation. Um, I'm glad uh, about that. I think it would probably be principally received in the lens of partisan politics, precisely as you say. I think it is an interesting question whether cardinals are reading it or not. And I do think it would have more weight if it could be evaluated through the lens of the author himself. And I hope that we will find out uh, who who the author is. But I certainly don't think things like this and, and look, I, I I think things like I think this is can can and should be distinguished from kind of the genre of open letters calling the Pope a heretic and things like that. Um, one of the, the the phrase which I found the most interesting, Ed, and I don't know what you thought about this, but um, the, the the sort of a, assessment, the diagnosis that I found the most interesting. And let me just find it here. Um, Ambiguity is neither evangelical nor welcoming. Rather, it breeds doubt and feeds schismatic impulses. I thought that was a particularly sort of poignant as assessment of the fracturing of the church that we see right now, that there is, I, I think there is genuinely, and, and you don't need to take my word for it, you can just look at Germany and other places, there is clearly a demonstrable rise in impulsively schismatic behavior um, or impulsively quasi-schismatic behavior. And it's, Im it's impulsively schismatic behavior um, but here's the thing, and it goes hand in hand with this sort of ecclesiology of, of cult of personality, which is that the answer to increasingly schismatic acts by for things like the German Bishops' Conference and, and stuff like that, and, and other, other um, obvious tensions on the, on the visible communion of the College of Bishops and, and the, the global church caused by things like, for example, the fall of the fiducius of the guns. Mm -hmm. the, the response to that is to say, oh, well, as long as you're in personal communion with the person of the Pope, then it's fine. Because that's, that's all that there is to the right. church, really, is there's the person of the Pope, and then there's people who say, yes, I'm in communion with him, the man. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then it doesn't really matter if Germany says, well, we are going to have women priests and same-sex marriage and um, lay governance and all these other things. And the entire Church of Africa says, you can't do any of those things. Are you kidding me? That's totally against the deposit of the faith. What are you, what are you doing? Um, that The way you sort of paper over those giant cracks is say, well, it's no, there's no schism. Everybody here is themselves in communion with the person of the pope so it's fine there's no problem that's that is the definition of communion and i that's the part i find terrifying and you're right and demos too is correct in the assessment that ambiguity and this sort of studied ambiguity from saying well we're being ambiguous because within the ambiguity there is now room for this plurality there's there's room yeah, for right. all of mm -hmm. this difference yeah. and that's all totally safe because right. Everyone shakes hands with Peter at the end of the conversation, so it's cool. 
And and there's another element that you have raised for me, um, uh, something which I think is a lacuna in this text, as it sort of outlines the various things which the next pope could or might do and, and take into consideration in the conclave and things like that. There is a um, you know, global travel served a pastor like Pope John Paul II so well because of his unique personal gifts and the nature of the times, this says. But the times and circumstances have changed. The pope should effectively stay closer to home. That comes close, I think, to a point which really needs to be considered, namely the relationship between man and office and the degree to which over the last three pontificates, man has become bigger than office or office has become regarded as a platform for the man and his sort of theopolitical agenda and things like that. And I, I would have wished that Deimos too would have done some reflection on a restoration of the papacy, and I know I've said this before, but it's important to me, of the papacy being much larger than the the, the man who o- occupies it. The office of the Roman papacy being so so much larger than the c- capacity of the man who occupies it, that he approach it rather than um, as the platform for his, um, for his particular sort of set of theological priorities, but with fear and trembling that he do anything um, or do too much, lest he um, in some way cause scandal or cause confusion or, um, or, or shake or weaken faith or make it more difficult for the church to unpack and interpret the, um, the, uh, the deposit of faith. Like just what isn't called for here, I, I don't think. Um, but w- what I think is one of the things which I think is sorely needed, and this is not just a Francis criticism in the modern papacy is, um, the humility, which makes the occupation of the papacy or the diocesan episcopate very, very different from the occupation of the local political office or the national political office for that matter. I, I would agree with you, but Benedict had that in spades. Like that's why Benedict brought back all the Benedict gear. did have that in spades. Yeah, he did. He really was bringing back, but it was interpreted as Benedict likes old stuff. Right. I don't think enough people understood what Benedict was doing. Hardly anyone did. Um, but the, the, my point that I was building towards is Benedict had that in spades and look what it got us in terms of the Roman Curia. He shrank and disappeared within the size and majesty and with humility and deference to the, you know, the office being so much more important than the man and that you, you know, it's not for any one person to try and, you know, wrap their hands around it and bend it and make it their own. And, you know, you're not supposed to eat the papacy and become super ratzinger, you know, which is arguably what, you know, JP2 yeah. did. And, you know, um, but the problem is you can't deliver any kind of meaningful curial reform on the scale that Demos II is calling for if that's your approach to the papacy. But di- there are diocesan bishops who can. You know, I, th- I've, I've been trying to think, are there, do I know, can I think of American diocesan bishops who have approached their episcopacy with that sort of um, woeful trepidation about the magnitude of the office or that sort of caution and disciplinary reserve regarding the exercise of their office? One one person who comes to mind, and I don't want to seem platitudinous towards him, but I'm always sort of vexed because I, I try often, I have, I try often to get um, opinions or statements out of uh, Bernie Hebda, Archbishop Bernie Hebda of Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minneapolis. Bernard, please stop Bernard, calling Bernard. bishops by these nicknames you give them. <laughs> You're not allowed to call. You have, you do this all the time. You cannot call bishops, Timmy, Bernie, I Billy, Mikey. You can't do this. <laughs> They have a full Christian name and you will use it, please. I have tried to get opinions out of Arch- someone like Archbishop Hebda of St. Paul in Minneapolis, and I've kind of gotten back the response, the Archbishop doesn't want to weigh in on a personal level on that. And that strikes me as being relatively uncommon, which is why I flag it. Like, I don't I don't, I don't, don't know a lot of bishops. So there, maybe there are more than we think, but a lot of bishops who have the sort of discipline to desire to see themselves as carriers of a, uh, as carriers of an office rather than as the, um, as, as those standing atop the office. And, um, and when you see it, it's a laudable thing. I think that's what I, I see in St. Paul in Minneapolis. But my point is that's also a place where extraordinary curial reform has been accomplished at the Archdiocese. If you're level. making an argument for Archbishop Hebda for Pope, Fine. <laughs> Unfortunately, JP two abolish abolish the 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 election by acclamatio by um, compromise. So, I think the I think the odds of a two thirds majority returning for the yeah. Archbishop of Minneapolis, who will not be there present in the conclave, are, are slim as things stand at the moment. Um, but what we could have talked about on this show, but we didn't, is prospects for conclave voting reform. Um, and you want to talk case, about that in the bonus episode, Edward? 
Well, we might. I mean, maybe bonus the bonus episodes, by the way, the bonus episode of the Pillar Podcast is a little, the conversation after the conversation. And if you can't get enough of the Pillar Podcast, then you should um, become a subscriber to PillarCatholic.com so that you can get bonus episodes in your podcast feed. And then you get, Ed and I spend a, a little more time talking about the things that we've been talking about. And uh, the bonus episodes are great. Or sometimes completely different things. Who knows? They're, uh, or sometimes completely different things. They're available to subscribers of PillarCatholic.com, as is our new offering, which I'm really excited about, Pillar TLDR, uh, a new um, podcast feed from The Pillar in which every week Ed and I will read to you aloud our Tuesday and Friday newsletters and in which our esteemed and um, quite capable executive producer, Kate Oliveira, will read to you um, a selection of Pillar stories each week and give you a news roundup, a short, brief news roundup of all the news that's happening in the church, um, whether or not we covered it um, at The Pillar or not. If you like news roundups, by the way, another thing that's available to you if you're a subscriber of PillarCatholic.com is Starting 7, our daily in-your-inbox roundup of the things that are happening in the life of the church and what you need to know. Uh, for me, Pillar, TLDR, and uh, Starting 7 are, are indispensable, and um, we're really I'm really excited that we can offer both of them to subscribers to the Pillar. And a tote bag. We'll probably try and get a tote bag for you. No, too, no you know, tote bags. This is not turn this into some kind of PBS pitch. So. Yeah. There'll be no tote bags. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, Ned and J.D. Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner and an excellent interlocutor today, Ed, I've really enjoyed talking with you, is uh, is my friend Ed Condon. Um, Ed, I, I just want to say, I, I was not sure because when we started this show, when we well, when we got on our podcast platform app, you were, um, you were a bit melancholic this morning, and I was worried that it was going to be a conversation in which I had to pull teeth. And uh, it's been, a, I think, a delightful conversation. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. I'm still depressed. I mean... <laughs>